0: Let's pray together. O worthy God, we join with the heavenly host to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We bow low in our hearts this morning and agree with those who see you without a cloud between, and say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you, O Lord. Yet our lives have not reflected, the way, reflected this the way that we should. We have lived like comfort, entertainment, jobs, agendas, and sins are more important than you. We have valued ourselves more highly than You. And for that, Lord, we ask You to forgive us. We long for the day when we will stop sinning forever. When we will see You and be like You and be done with sins and sorrows and stumblings and slip-ups forever and ever. Until that day comes, merciful God, remember that we are dust. We are feeble and broken and incapable of any spiritual life or good apart from You. We remember this. We cling to this. You are the only one who can bring us safely over Jordan to Beulah Land. The only one who can deliver us from evil. So do this, Lord, according to your promises. Some of us have fallen badly this week. We have ended up saying things we now regret as we stand before you. Our petty anger seems so silly before your glorious might. Forgive us. Others of us feel we have barely made it to another Lord's Day. Trials and temptations have hounded us like a persistent dog, nipping at our heels all week long so that we almost stumble into unbelief and despair. Remind these dear ones of your son, who had his own heel bruised as he crushed the serpent's head. And since that enemy of ours has been vanquished, help us all in our faith to not just give a mental assent to the Gospel, but to live in the light of the Gospel." We don't deserve it, but we long for it. A great booster shot of confidence in you and your word and your ways. Give us the confident hope of the three thrown into the fiery furnace. To that brother or sister getting pressured to compromise at work, give the soaring trust of Peter as he looked at Jesus and walked with him on the water. To that sister facing another week of toddlers, meals, and laundry. Give us all, even the partway faith of that man with the demon-possessed son who looked at Jesus and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Bless your church around the world. May she steadily advance in every place, encroaching up against the gates of hell. What are those gates to you? They will not prevail against the steady advance of the gospel. Nothing can stop God. Break apart those forbidding bars and set the captives free. Do this saving work in your own gathering today, in our own gathering today. Help those, Lord, who are here but do not know Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to love Christ and His Gospel. Break through our unbelief and save us today, Lord. And show us more of Yourself. We are about to listen to the proclamation of your word. We do this because you believe, we believe that you have commanded us to do this and you have promised to bless the means. Our hope is in you, Lord. Please bless this time and this message that your word would not return void. You have told us that you will look with favor on he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at your word. Make us shaky listeners today, God. Put a tremor in our hearts as your words come forth. And do this all because of Jesus Christ, the true word of God, who gave himself for us, redeemed and rescued us, lived and died for us, reigns and will return for us. All of our hope is in him. And that you will hear his intercession on our behalf, combined with these stammering requests made perfect to your ears by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Is turning your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. The book of Jonah, chapter 4. Today we will conclude our series through the book of Jonah. One of the things that the book of Jonah made abundantly clear to me early on was that the Bible is a book with only one hero, and that is Jesus Christ. All of these people who are supposed to be the best of us, the ones who are going to help us and rescue us and do the right thing, they fail over and over and over again. And Jonah is no exception. We have seen this man disobey God, run from God, try to die, get swallowed by a giant fish. And last week we saw him preach the coming judgment of God against Nineveh. And wonder of wonders, when Jonah preached in Nineveh, the people actually believed it and repented. He said, yet 40 days and God's going to destroy this place. And they all said, uh, we don't want that to happen. We better get right. And they put the animals in sackcloth. They made the children repent. They took no chances. And as a result, God did not bring disaster upon Nineveh. And that's where our story picks up today. Our story picks up today with Jonah's response to this. And Jonah's response to this is not what you might expect. You would think that a man of God who sees a great city with hundreds of thousands of people repent. You would think that a man of God would be excited, grateful for this. But Jonah is not. And the question that we must consider today as we look to God's Word together is how we should respond to the mercy of God, to the merciful works of God, especially when that mercy is shown to people that we do not think deserves it. So let's look together at Jonah chapter 4 beginning with the first four verses. If you've got one of our bulletins or one of our sermon listening guides from the back table, um, you you would see that uh, there's two blanks there for our two points. And so the first one, the first point today is Jonah calls good evil. Jonah calls good evil. Let's look at Jonah chapter 4 beginning in the first four verses. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. From me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? We are told in verse 1 of chapter 4 that Jonah is displeased exceedingly. You may have a footnote in your Bible, as I do in mine, where it explains to you that the Hebrew literally says, It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah, that the Ninevites repented and God spared them. The word that is used there for displeased, there in verse 1, is the Hebrew word ra'ah. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 10, where it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, that word there is ra'ah. God relented of the disaster. That word is also ra'ah that He said He would do to them and He did not do it. So we see that the Ninevites relented from ra'ah and God, they repented from ra'ah and God relented of His ra'ah and Jonah saw that whole thing as ra'ah. This word is used in various places in Scripture for things like evil and disaster for things that are morally bad or or a bad thing that happens to someone. This is intentional usage here. The writer of Jonah wants us to pick up on what Jonah's real heart is. By using this word, we are being told that Jonah is essentially feeling that God has done evil in sparing Nineveh from destruction. Now that's a new one. We're often faced with non believers who point to things in the Old Testament like God destroying whole people, whole civilizations, and they say, See, that's a wicked God. It's not often you come across somebody saying, When God didn't destroy people, that that was a wicked God, but that's what Jonah's saying. Jonah sees God's relenting of disaster upon Nineveh as wicked and evil. This is especially staggering when we remember that God, just two chapters ago, showed mercy and forgiveness to Jonah in the midst of his own disastrous evil. Jonah disobeyed God, ran from God, did not go to Nineveh as he was told to, tried to kill himself, tried to have pagan sailors kill him, and then got swallowed by a great fish and then waited three days before finally praying. And God showed this insincere, wicked man mercy. He relented of the disaster that was coming upon Jonah. Because what did Jonah do? Jonah repented. Jonah believes that he is entitled to God's mercy and forgiveness. We talked a little bit about this when we preached through chapter two, how Jonah's prayer has this very kind of self-centered, self-serving kind of perspective, and we see it played out here in his response. Jonah thinks, I deserve mercy. I deserve grace. They don't. Notice that it took Jonah three days to pray in the fish. It don't take him three days to pray now. He's mad. And it says in verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Notice what's happening here. Jonah is saying, I knew you were all these good things and that's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. He wasn't scared. He wasn't concerned for his own life. He says, I knew you would forgive him and that's why I didn't want to go. This is where we see the real Jonah come out. This is where we see who Jonah really is. All of his actions through the first three chapters now make perfect sense. And I want you to pick up on something. You may have recognized some of that language that Jonah uses there. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God says this, to Moses because a couple chapters before this, while Moses was up on the mountain getting the law of God on the tablets, Israel is downstairs having the first Mardi Gras. They have gotten Aaron to fashion a golden calf for them that they can worship. They said, Moses has been gone a really long time. Who knows if he's ever coming back? We need a new God. And Moses comes down off the mountain to find the people of Israel having this absurd pagan worship service around this golden calf that they have made. And God says, I am going to kill them all. And Moses prays for the people of Israel. Praise for the people of Israel, and he says to the Lord, he says, God, you have made promises. Remember your covenant with Abram and Isaac and Jacob. Remember who you are. Don't destroy these people. Don't destroy these people. And in Exodus 32, 14, it tells us that God relented from disaster, Ra'ah, against Israel. Jonah quotes some of the most precious truths about God's character that he revealed about himself in his relenting of disaster. He says to the people of Israel, I keep my covenant. I am a good God. I am a gracious and merciful God. I'm slow to anger and I have steadfast love. Jonah quotes those things as negatives. He says these things make you a wicked God. The Israelites had been brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea, had been guided through the wilderness by God himself, who was in the process of giving them his law. And they built an idol to worship because because Moses was taken too long on the mountain. God would have been completely just to utterly destroy them at that moment, to bring Ra'ah upon them. But he does not. Because he is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The incredible mercy of God should be something that drives Jonah to extraordinary thankfulness. Jonah should think about Exodus 34.6 and go, What an incredible God that I serve! But instead, Jonah is saying that God is wrong to be those things toward those people. You're only supposed to be those things to me, God. Not them. He is furiously angry over this. And again, as is Jonah's way, he wants to die. Jonah is like the moodiest of moody teenagers. I did youth ministry for a decade And this reminds me so much of dealing with teenagers. Oh, I just want to die. But this is even more severe. Because in a certain sense, Jonah is essentially saying to God, if you're going to forgive the Ninevites, you're going to have to do it over my dead body. Jonah's reaction to this shows us Just how insincere his prayer was in chapter 2. In verses 7 and 9 it says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And then in verse 9 it says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. When Jonah was praying, he talked about how grateful he was that the Lord would care for his life. And now... He's wishing that he was dead because the Lord showed mercy to people who had genuinely repented. Remember, Jonah concluded his prayer with the phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord. If it belongs to the Lord, is it not the Lord's to give freely? If I own something, I can give it to whoever I desire. The Lord, salvation belongs to him. And Jonah, in his prayer, specifies salvation belongs to the Lord. He talks about being thankful. And here the Lord is giving salvation to whom he wills. And Jonah says, no, 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 not not them. If you give it to them, I want to die. Kill me. I don't want to live in a world where God forgives that kind of person. Those people. Verse 4 says, and the Lord said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? kind of a clunky phrase but essentially what he's saying to jonah there is is this really the right way to respond to this again reminds me of working with teenagers is that really how you're going to respond right now is that really what you're doing essentially god is saying to jonah is it right for you to be angry that the same mercy and grace that the lord showed you is being shown to other people Obviously, we would all say the answer to that is no. It is wrong for Jonah to be angry that the Lord has relented of disaster upon the Ninevites. But Jonah is undeterred by God's question. I think about the book of Job often. And I think about how Job responded when God started asking him questions. Job's response to God's questions was, I'm going to shut up and repent now. Jonah's response to God's questions is, hmm, I'm going to keep pouting. And so we see in verses 5 through 11 that God appoints a plant. God appoints a plant. Jonah chapter 4, verse 5 says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left And also much cattle? Jonah does not respond to the Lord's question. Instead, he goes outside the city to watch and hope that God does, in fact, send disaster. Essentially, Jonah has kind of got his fingers crossed, thinking, Hey, maybe, maybe my prayer to God, maybe my threat that he'd have to do it over my dead body, maybe that convinced him. Maybe God's going to come to his senses and go, oh, man, Jonah's right. It would be wrong for me to show mercy to these people. I'm going to destroy them after all. That's what he's hoping for. And so he goes outside the city, and the Bible tells us that he builds a booth for his protection. This is just basically a temporary shelter. It's to protect him from the hot Middle Eastern sun, the scorching desert wind. And so he's, he's built himself this little shelter and he sits down and he watches the city waiting to see if the Lord will in fact destroy this awful place. And that night, while Jonah is sleeping, a miraculous plant shows up. It grows overnight from nothing into a, fully, a full-fledged plant large enough to provide him shade. And we see in the Scriptures that the Lord has appointed it. This is the same word used in Jonah 1.17, where we're told that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. The Lord sent this plant. This is the Lord seeking to instruct Jonah and move him away from his errors in his thoughts about God and his ways. God does this sometimes. He sends discipline upon His people in ways that that is intended to make them go, man, I am being a dum-dum. And that's what He's doing to Jonah. He appoints this plant. And so it grows overnight to a significant size. Like I said, it was large enough to provide shade for Jonah. And the Bible tells us that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Discomfort is the Hebrew word ra'ah again. I mean, look, we're missing some stuff reading this in English. That's why I'm pointing this out to you. Because in Hebrew, they would go, oh, okay, I see what's happening here. It's instantaneous. Oh, God's trying to save Jonah from his ra'ah by appointing this plant. And when Jonah is saved from his own ra'ah, it tells us he is exceedingly glad because of the plant. When God relented of disaster upon Nineveh, Joda was exceedingly displeased. He was furiously angry. When God causes a plant to give him shade, he is exceedingly glad. He has experienced the same thing as the Ninevites. He has been saved from his ra'ah. And he responds the exact opposite way. Again. He is so thick-headed that he does not get it. We as readers are supposed to immediately pick up on the self-centered hypocrisy of Jonah here, even though Jonah definitely does not pick up on his own self-centered hypocrisy. And the plant is there for one whole day. He has shade for one whole day and he is exceedingly glad for one whole day And then, God takes that deliverance away. God appoints a worm to come up to attack the plant so that the plant withers. So that happens overnight. He appoints this worm to come and eat this plant so when Jonah wakes up, the plant is dead. His his salvation from his ra'ah, his deliverance is gone And then the Bible tells us that as the sun rose, the Lord appointed a scorching hot wind. And so what happens to Jonah? It says that the sun beats down on his head in the face of this scorching hot wind, and he is faint. He gets sick. He's about to pass out. You would hope that Jonah, in the midst of this judgment from God, would stop and go, man, I see now, God, what you're doing. I get now what's happening. I really ought to repent of my own sinfulness. You would think Jonah would figure out now how wrong he is. But no, he does not. Jonah immediately returns to his default position that he goes to all the time, when he doesn't get his way, and it says, and he asked that he might die. Man, this guy is so dramatic. Everything that happens, I just want to die. It is better for me to die than to live. But this is not self-pity. This is not Jonah going... I'm so hot and and uncomfortable and I just want to die. This is anger. This is Jonah's furious anger. Because God himself says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Again, when God asks you a question like that, folks, you should probably say, no. No. Or at the very least, just be quiet. But Jonah very stupidly responds to God and says, Yes, i do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Don't ever say that to God. If the Lord ever asks you a question, don't answer it like that. Definitely not the right way to answer. What we are seeing is we are seeing Jonah's heart be continuously hardened over the course of our story. Jonah tells us himself that from the very beginning, he wanted the Ninevites to die. And he was so willing for that to happen. He desired it so greatly that he disobeyed God. He desired it so greatly that he he wanted to die. He desired it so greatly that he literally calls God evil. And that hardening of his heart culminates in this. He is angry at not being delivered from his own disaster. Again, we see that Jonah believes in himself that he deserves deliverance but that other people don't, especially those Ninevites. They don't deserve it, but I do. And the way we see this is that it is manifested in Jonah having what the Bible calls pity for the plant. He pities the plant. That poor plant, it's not fair what happened to it. It was just a pretty plant. It gave me shade and now it's dead. That is so absurd. We are talking about a man who is pitying a plant while he is desiring to see a city with hundreds of thousands of people be destroyed. He is crying over a plant while saying God is wicked for not killing all of these people. And this is exactly what God points out to him in verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. God says to Jonah, you didn't do anything to bring this plant about. You literally just sat here. I made the plant. And this plant that you love so much was alive for one whole day. And you are upset enough about this plant's demise that you want to die. You are willing to say to God, I am right to be angry, angry enough to die over a plant that he did nothing for. It wasn't even like he planted it and watered it and nurtured it. It was just there and then it was just gone. And God says in verse 11, and should not I... Pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God says to Jonah, shouldn't Nineveh rank higher on your list of things to take pity on? He says it is filled with people who don't know their right from their left. That's a way for God to essentially say that these people are so far from him, so unknowledgeable about the word, so unknowledgeable about right and wrong that they are like children who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand. God is saying, these people are helpless against my judgment. And what is the only hope that they have? That someone would come and say, God is going to destroy you. And that's what happened. And then they all repented. Jonah's misplaced pity is so utterly despicable, so utterly wicked, that the Lord literally concludes his question with the fact that a bunch of cows are going to die too. Since Jonah seems to care so much about creation, he doesn't care about the Ninevites, but he cares about the plant, Shouldn't, shouldn't it register for Jonah that that God's going to kill a bunch of cows? I mean, Jonah's this upset about one plant, shouldn't a whole bunch of cattle register for Jonah? Like, oh, well, I don't want them to die. Like, if you're going to be all weirdo tree-hugging PETA person over here crying about a plant, shouldn't you at least care about the cows too? But that doesn't even register for Jonah. He hasn't even thought about that. He's just angry about God's goodness to people other than him. And it is tempting for us to look at Jonah and go, what a terrible person. What an absolute trash can of a human being. It's tempting for us to look at him and talk about how wicked he is and go, glad I'm not like that guy. But we would do well to search our own hearts and truly ask ourselves whether or not we believe like Jonah does, whether we behave like Jonah does. Maybe you have never once hoped for the destruction of people that you thought were wicked and undeserving of God's grace. Maybe you've never once done that. But there are two ways that I think we as Christians have some practical Jonaness in us. The first is unforgiveness. In Matthew chapter 18, we see the parable of the unforgiving servant. Starting in verse 21, it says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Other translations say 70 times seven. The whole idea there is just a lot of times. Not you tick off the boxes until you get to 78 or 491, and you're like, ooh, good, I don't got to forgive him anymore. He's saying so many times that you just lose count, and you just keep on forgiving. And Jesus says this parable to help understand. He says, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children all that he had in payment to be made. You need to understand something here, okay? A talent is equivalent to about 20 years worth of wages for a worker. So we're talking about 10,000 20 years wages. This is a massive amount of money that he will never ever be able to repay. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii was about a day's wage for a laborer. So about a hundred days' worth of wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jonah as a part of covenant Israel, as a part of the people of God, enjoyed the mercy of God. It did apply to him. It was something that was for him. But he refused to extend mercy to the Ninevites. When we refuse to forgive, even those who have hurt us greatly, we are doing the same. We are essentially saying that we are more deserving of mercy than the person who hurt us and by extension we are saying that we are greater than god because where god gave his only son his sinless perfect son in order that our sins would be forgiven we are refusing to forgive despite being forgiven something infinitely worse sin against a perfect holy god do you think of your sins in this way That your sins are infinitely heinous because they are against an infinitely great God? That the sins against you, no matter how severe they may be, pale in comparison to your sins against God? Because that's the truth. Your sin is is given weight by who you have sinned against. Our sin against God is infinitely more weighty than anyone's sin against us. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that dismissively. I understand you may have been sinned against in horrible, awful ways that no person should ever have to suffer. And I want you to know from my heart, I feel for you. I don't say this to say, get over it. I say this to say, no matter how great that sin was, your sin against God was greater. And God freely forgave you. And you might say, well, pastor, you don't understand the cost it would be to me, the hurt it would bring to me to forgive this person. Uh, God gave his son to forgive you. Christ died for your sin. You cannot say it would hurt me more to forgive this person than it hurt God to forgive me. It's not true. We must forgive. We must forgive. So, the first thing is a lack of forgiveness in the ways that we are like Jonah. The second thing is a lack of gospel proclamation, whether out of neglect or just outright refusal. This is the call of the Christian in Matthew chapter 28. We see the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But I'm just going to be real with you. Too many of us just don't do this. We just don't. We know it's there. We believe it to be true. But we don't do it. Ask yourself, Truthfully, honestly, be honest with yourself. You don't have to tell me, but just just be real with yourself. Have you given priority to sharing the gospel? Last year, I introduced Who's Your One to our church, where I encouraged all of us to pick one person that we were going to intentionally seek to share the gospel with. Have you shared the gospel with your one? Have you shared the gospel with anyone? In the last year and a half, have you shared the gospel with anybody? You don't have to answer that for me. You have to answer that for you. Not sharing the gospel is not loving your neighbor. We are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves, And when we keep the good news of Jesus Christ to ourself, for whatever reason we do that, what we're really saying is, I don't care if they go to hell. I got my fire insurance. Sucks for them. That's what we're saying. Maybe not overtly, but that's where our hearts are. Romans 10, 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And I want you to understand here that this verse is not talking about preaching like what I'm doing now. This verse is talking about preaching in the sense of proclamation. To go and proclaim the gospel. This is where Christians are built up and equipped to go out there to proclaim the gospel to the world. And beyond just being the call of the Christian, this is literally what we were made for. We were made in the image of God to go and image God to creation. That's why we exist. We must go. This is our identity given to us by God to go be an image bearer in the world that we might give an answer for the hope that is in us. And when we don't live this out, we are denying God just like Jonah was. So what do we do? What do we do with The book of Jonah, what do we do with this thing that we are faced with? Well, the first thing that we do is this we thank God for Jesus Christ. Because Jonah failed and failed miserably. He was a man who was called by God to go and proclaim, and Jonah said, Not going to do it because you're going to save, and I don't want that. Jonah was a failure, an abject failure. And so has every other person been, save one. And so, brothers and sisters, don't find hope. Definitely not in Jonah. Don't find hope in yourself. Don't find hope in me. Don't find hope in your grandma's testimony. Don't find hope in your church membership. Find hope in Christ and in Christ alone. Because that is the only hope that is worth anything. And we rejoice in the mercy that God has shown us. We do not deserve forgiveness. And yet God has given it to us freely. And we rejoice in that. And the overflow of that rejoicing is that we need to go and proclaim that mercy to others. Even those that don't deserve it. Because we know that none of us deserves it. We don't deserve it. And yet God continues to give it. We need to understand that Christ's atoning death has a global reach. And we need to proclaim the gospel like we believe that's true. You might say to me, well, Pastor, I, I, don't, I don't share the gospel with people because I know they're not going to listen. I know they're not, they're not going to believe in Jesus. They're, they're not going to repent. They're not going to turn to God. You know how many people would have said that about the Ninevites too? You know how many, many people would have said that about me and about you? And yet here we are. Because our God does miracles. And the greatest miracle of all is salvation. Go out and proclaim the gospel like you believe that to be true. Press on to be disciples of Jesus, not disciples of Jonah. In just a moment, Brother Scott and Mr. Becker are going to come and we're going to have a time of response to God's word. And during that time, I'm going to be down front. And if you would like to come and talk with me, to ask me questions about how you can know Christ and be saved, I would love to share that with you. If you just want to come and pray with me about your own inaction in evangelism and sharing the gospel, I would be glad to pray for you in that as well. But do not let this moment pass by. Do not let the lessons of the book of Jonah Vanish into the ether while you go from here and remain the same. Christ is coming again soon. Our time is short. And people who are around us, who we love, are going to die and go to hell unless we go and tell them the truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the book of Jonah, for the ways that you have used it to reveal to us our need for Christ, the depth of our sin. And Lord, I pray that today we would repent of that sin, that we would trust fully in Christ and rest in Him for our salvation. pray for anyone here who does not know Jesus, Lord, that they would know Him today. Move in the hearts of Your people during this time. In Christ's name. Amen.